This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. Hi, how are you, John? Oh, living the dream. How about yourself? Doing really well. I'm excited about this episode. This is the second time we've done this, and it's going to be a lightning roundup of the most recent 10 articles we presented. So great for busy people. You can learn about 10 recent addiction medicine articles, and who knows, they might change your practice. All right, John, are you ready to get started? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first one I have is episode 11, uh, Impact of Wine Bottle and Glass Size on Wine Consumption at Home, a Within and Between Household Randomized Control Trial. And this is from Addiction July 2022. This article was a randomized controlled trial of 260 wine drinking households in the United Kingdom with crossover randomization to bottle size, randomized to 37.5 cubic liters versus 75 cubic liters, and parallel randomization to glass size, 290 milliliter versus 350 milliliter wine glasses. Between November 2020 and August 2021, studying the effects of bottle and glass size on consumption patterns. Interestingly, in this study, after covariate adjustment, drinking from both smaller glasses and bottles were associated with reduction in drinking volumes over a two-week period of time. Glass size appeared to have a more powerful effect, reducing alcohol consumption 253.3 mLs compared to bottle size, which reduced alcohol consumption 145.7 mLs, although both reductions did not meet statistical significance. I thought this was kind of an interesting article because while this was not a statistically significant association, there is a probable relationship between the two. And this is a possible target for population health level interventions to decrease alcohol consumption on a more kind of global or societal level. So I thought that was interesting. On a personal note, after reading the article, I've actually found myself drifting towards a smaller wine glass at my house um, when I'm entertaining guests or watching a movie on Friday night with my wife. So at least I took something away from it. Yeah. And it's even more relevant, I think, than it was when we first presented it a few months ago, because all this new data has come out showing that no level of alcohol is safe. You know, and so really drinking as little as you can is better. And so strategies to reduce alcohol consumption, I feel, are even more relevant than they were when you first talked about that article. Agreed. What's up next, Sonia? All right. Episode 12, we talked about an article titled Association of Methamphetamine and Opioid Use with Non-Fatal Overdose in Rural Communities. This was a really hot article, hot meaning a lot of people were talking about it. It was published in JAMA Network Open in August 2022. So as you might know, methamphetamine use is particularly common in rural communities, and methamphetamine overdoses have increased tenfold in the past decade. There seems to be a particularly high rate of overdoses among people who use methamphetamine and opioids together, and this study set out to learn more about methamphetamine use and its interplay with opioid use in rural communities. Specifically, that's where this study was done. So this was a cross-sectional survey of patients from something called the Rural Opioid Initiative, and it asked the basic question, does exposure to methamphetamines, opioids, or both correlate with overdose risk? Their data was from surveys of patients rather than from medical records or insurance claims. They surveyed adults from 10 rural states and asked them about recent drug use, overdoses, and treatment access. So we thought this was a valid study, especially using patient interviews to determine overdose rates rather than insurance claims or medical records, which are notoriously unreliable information sources when it comes to overdose rates. 
Two limitations we noticed was the lack of any objective data to document the drug use and the study design as a single cross-sectional survey, which makes it harder to draw causal connections between the drug use and the overdoses. The results of this study were pretty sad. The prevalence of methamphetamine use among injection drug and opioid users was between 31 and 98%, depending on the area. Co-use of methamphetamines and opioids were significantly increased a person's risk of overdose, and 55% of patients reporting a non-fatal overdose, and 22% reported a non-fatal overdose in the past six months. So tons of overdoses in this population. The study also showed that methamphetamine and opioid co-use was associated with more difficulty accessing treatment. Finally, people who use methamphetamine alone had a very high risk of overdose, likely opioid overdose, but they were less likely to have naloxone than patients who knew they were using opioids. So I felt that this study would definitely help me in patient care since I have a better understanding now, since I read it, of the dangers of methamphetamine and opioid co-use. I'm now much more aggressive in getting my patients with methamphetamine and opioid co-use into intensive treatment and making sure that everyone who uses methamphetamines has naloxone. I don't have a good free source for naloxone currently, but there are places in our community that give it out kind of periodically. So back to making sure everyone who uses methamphetamines has naloxone. I also have started recommending that my patients purchase fentanyl test strips. I don't have a great free source in our area for fentanyl test strips, but some of the community organizations are giving them out. And so patients who use methamphetamine should test their drugs for fentanyl before they use. I also will continue to coach my colleagues who treat opioid use disorder that a patient who continues to use methamphetamine should not be dismissed from treatment with buprenorphine because they're a high overdose risk and they should definitely stay in treatment. So a really interesting article. I'm glad we read it. Um, a little sad as it characterized this wave of methamphetamine use in our community. Yeah, I thought this was a really awesome article just because it kind of gave some insight into I think what we all have been seeing. Um, I think a lot of people refer to this kind of co-ingestion of uh, opioids with methamphetamine is the fourth wave of the opioid epidemic, or at least that's why I've heard it called colloquially a couple of different times. It's good to know kind of where the risk factors are with these patients in terms of overdose. And you're right. I think um, one of our other addiction medicine colleagues has kind of used the term silos that, you know, while the two together are definitely a predictor of poor treatment outcomes, uh, you really should kind of be looking at these independently. And while you target the opioid use disorder, also coming up with an aggressive plan to treat the methamphetamine use and not dismissing them due to their high risk from treatment, if you can. Yeah, I'm starting to see patients in my practice for the first time this year who are heavily using methamphetamine, whereas previously I wasn't seeing that. And I've retained them all in treatment with buprenorphine, and they've done great from an opioid standpoint, but the methamphetamine is definitely creeping into our area. Episode 13, Prescription Opioids and Longitudinal Changes in Cognitive Function in Older Adults, a Population-Based Observational Study. This is from the Journal of American Geriatrics from July of 2022. This study is a secondary analysis of the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging, which is a prospective cohort study of 4,218 patients aged 65 and above, examined the epidemiology of cognitive decline and risk of mild cognitive impairment among residents living in Olmsted County, Minnesota. This secondary analysis looks specifically at post-enrollment, opioid exposure, and risk of cognitive decline. 
With a very impressive median follow-up of seven and a half years, nominal but statistically significant cognitive decline was noted with each additional opioid prescriptions. So they did a global cognitive Z-score of negative 0.007 for each opioid prescription, and that was very statistically significant at P of less than 0.001. When broken down by domain, in descending order, the most affected was memory, followed by attention, followed by language, and very interestingly, visual spatial domains were not affected by opioid prescriptions in the study. Prior receipt of an opioid during follow-up was also associated with a statistically significant increased hazard ratio of mild cognitive impairment. So this study, while not totally practice changing, I think it is useful for us to take care of geriatric patients. So internal medicine and family medicine uh, come across this quite often. Elderly patients, they're definitely the most afflicted demographic uh, in our panels that suffer from chronic pain and acute pain. Injury rates are high and just dealing with chronic pain on a long-term basis is very common for them. Counseling regarding risks and benefits is something that we do before any opioid prescription when that's an option for pain control. And I do think that adding in the possibility of cognitive decline as an association, as one of those risks, is something that's a very patient-centered outcome that most of my patients would be very interested in. It's uh, surprising when I talk with my older patients, like 80 and above, about pain, and they might have medical comorbidities that preclude Tylenol or NSAIDs. Um, They often don't care about respiratory suppression or risk of death at that age. They just want to be comfortable. However, the idea of, of cognitive decline is something that they very much do care about. So while I don't recommend that you stop prescribing or in the appropriate situation, opioids for chronic pain to your elderly patients, this is just one more piece of information to kind of make a decision about. It's true. Telling patients that it can contribute to cognitive decline is the only thing that's ever convinced, I feel like, any of my patients to give up opioids or benzodiazepines. That's the most feared risk. Definitely the benzos. They don't care about the falls or the hip fractures, but when you tell them about the association with dementia, that often will get some some biters. Episode 14 was titled Early Life Trauma and Opioid Use Disorder. So this was an article in the Journal of Addiction Medicine, and it was titled Effects of Early Life Trauma on Risks for Adult Opioid Use Disorder are Mediated by Stress and Occur Independent of Depression and Anxiety. That title is a mouthful. I really like this article because it looked at the roots of opioid use disorder. The clinical question was, what is the association between opioid use disorder and early life trauma, and how is this association influenced by depression, anxiety, and perceived stress? So this was a retrospective study consisting of surveys of 310 people about their early life trauma and opioid use disorder. Everyone in the study used illicit opioids, so that was our baseline population. We thought that this trial was more exploratory than definitively proving anything since this was a convenient sample of patients recruited from a service called Mechanical Turk. And so we weren't sure they really represented the average patient with opioid use disorder. However, the questions asked were good and they did a great job synthesizing and summarizing the data that they did collect. The study showed that 93% of the respondents had at least one early life trauma, and the mean number of traumas was 9.9, so about 10 traumas per person, and these are people who have um, illicit opiate use. The more trauma experienced, the more severe the opioid use disorder. They also found that some of the development of opioid use disorder could be attributed to anxiety, depression, and stress, but not all of it. Perceived stress was the strongest possible mediator. So in summary, greater exposure to early life trauma was associated with more severe current opiate use disorder, as well as greater psychiatric impairment. 
Depression, anxiety, and stress may partially mediate this relationship, and current perceived stress stood out as the most significant mediator. I think about this article whenever I hear about my patients with early childhood trauma and have begun intensifying my counseling about the risk of opioid use in this population. So, you know, it gave me a little more insight into the development of opiate use disorder and the process by which people develop both opiate use disorder and mental health disorders after being exposed to significant amounts of early life trauma. Yeah, I think that this article kind of really tracks with a lot of stuff that we probably already feel, like a clinical gestalt. So I think it kind of affirms something that I think we always thought we knew. So it's nice to see it kind of objectively done here in a trial. I did really like how they looked at the mediation of the mental health component, because I did sometimes wonder does the trauma cause mental health dysfunction and then that makes you vulnerable to opiate use disorder or is it is that not the pathway? Um, and this showed that those two are actually somewhat connected but also not 100%. So you can see a connection between early life trauma and opiate use disorder independent of whether or not you develop depression or anxiety. All right, episode 15, this is buprenorphine versus methadone for opioid use disorder in pregnancy. It's from the New England Journal of Medicine from December 2022. This is a National Institute of Drug Abuse funded cohort study based upon Medicaid data featuring 2,548,372 pregnancies that ended in live births from 2000 to 2018 with subgroup analysis of neonatal outcomes including neonatal abstinence syndrome, preterm birth, small for gestational age, and low birth weight, in addition to maternal outcomes, including C-section and this kind of composite category of severe maternal complications of 13,255 linked deliveries exposed to buprenorphine and 6,019 linked deliveries exposed to methadone. So out of this large database, they extracted those two subgroups. The results of the study do track with a growing body of literature favoring improved neonatal outcomes with buprenorphine exposure in pregnancy compared to methadone with statistically significant positive associations between exposure and neonatal abstinence syndrome, preterm birth, small for gestational age, and low birth weight with no statistically significant difference in maternal outcomes of interest. One thing I, I kind of thought about when I was reading this this study was um, seven years ago, I took actually my first uh, board certification for the American Board of Family Medicine, and I got the single addiction medicine question on the entire examination wrong because I did not convert a newly pregnant woman from buprenorphine to methadone. And I got the, that was my only question on the entire exam about addiction medicine. I got it wrong. And I'd like to say at this point, I think that it appears the jury is no longer out on this topic. I think that both buprenorphine and methadone can safely be used for our pregnant patients with actually probably neonatal outcomes really definitively favoring buprenorphine at this point. I think that in taking all this information into account, I um, will still counsel my reproductive age patients and pregnant females with opioid use disorder that really kind of whatever is the most effective treatment is still the best since really it's the withdrawal on the baby that causes the most distress. But I don't think that necessarily saying that just because you're pregnant, this treatment choice is a slam dunk better choice for you. Has the American Board of Family Medicine sent you an apology letter for marking you wrong on that question all those years ago? I've changed PO boxes since that time frame, so I don't think I've got that yet. <laughs> you know, the one thing I'd say that does show a reflection of change, right? Because I know that I we work closely with the residents. Um, I think the fact that, you know, updated DA requirements, everyone has to be trained with some degree of knowledge of addiction medicine. 
I think that ACGME, at least for family medicine and internal medicine, I believe as well, you were telling me they've now integrated an addiction medicine component into the training track. I think there's a lot more questions now. I think that that's a lot of evolution for this into our next generation of practitioners in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it's the young people who will lead us forward in treatment of addiction and the old people will be left behind. Hopefully you and I can keep up with them. We'll see. All right. Episode 16 reviewed an article titled Recidivism and Mortality After In-Jail Buprenorphine Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder. It was published in Drug and Alcohol Dependence in February 2022. This was a cool article that compared recidivism rates among people released from two similar county jails, one that offered medication for opioid use disorder and one that did not. The two jails were in two adjacent counties in Massachusetts, and they made a natural experiment since they were similar in many ways, except in their offering of treatment with buprenorphine or naltrexone for the incarcerated people with opioid use disorder. So to summarize the clinical question, does offering medication for opioid use disorder in jail lead to lower recidivism rates after release? We thought this was a valid trial. It was not a randomized controlled trial, so the two groups were not completely similar at baseline, although they weren't too different. The results showed that post-release recidivism was lower in the group that got medication for opioid use disorder. Recidivism rates were 48% among people who got treatment while in jail and 63% among those who didn't. There were also many fewer property crimes among those who received medication for opioid use disorder, which is relevant since those crimes are linked primarily to drug use. You and I don't take care of incarcerated people directly, but since 77% of people who inject opioids will be incarcerated at some point, this is something that affects many of our patients, and the article gave us some insight into that part of their lives. Since the collection of this data, which ended in 2019, There have been several lawsuits in Massachusetts that have forced the non-compliant jail to offer medication for opioid use disorder, and now those inmates can get appropriate treatment too. Just a reminder for our listeners, it is illegal for people to be denied treatment for opioid use disorder at any time, but especially while they are incarcerated. I always tell the resident physicians that are in training that one of the things that kind of stinks about being an adult is that sometimes you do the right thing and you don't feel good about it just because it's you know, you don't get always rewarded for doing the right thing. I love to see uh, an article that where you do the right thing and it actually has a positive outcome and like everyone kind of wins. So this is kind of a feel good article for me out of our, our top 10 list here. Yeah, it was really nice to see an intervention that worked um, and worked so well and to then have the postscript of the article be that the intervention was adopted elsewhere. So episode 17, this continues kind of my topics of pregnancy that were back-to-back that we covered. It's called Buprenorphine Naloxone versus Buprenorphine for Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder in Pregnancy, and it's from the Journal of Addiction Medicine uh, from November, December 2022. This study is a single-center retrospective cohort study of deliveries at Boston University Medical Campus slash Boston Medical Center from 2016 to 2020, comparing 33 birthing dyads receiving buprenorphine naloxone and 73 birthing diets receiving buprenorphine monotherapy, looking at maternal outcomes of return to opioid use in pregnancy and neonatal outcomes of receipt of pharmacological therapy for neonatal withdrawal syndrome. Just for a little bit of context about this study, BMC transitioned in October of 2017 from treating neonatal abstinence syndrome from fixed-dose methadone over to a symptom-triggered methadone protocol, and in June 2018, from primarily prescribing buprenorphine to combination therapy for treatment of opioid use disorder in pregnancy. So basically, they were making this transition regardless. They were just kind of studying the groups as they went through the transition process. 
While the study was limited by, they will, they talk about this in the critique, it was a predominantly white population, although this reflected the Boston area, so I don't think that's necessarily a critique. It was non-randomized and non-blinded. The results of the trial show no statistically significant difference between the two groups in maternal or neonatal outcomes. So basically, if you had to take a bullet point away, no difference between the two groups. Specifically in regards to maternal outcomes, 36% in the combination group returned to opioids, while 23% in the buprenorphine monotherapy returned to use, and this was statistically not significant. In terms of neonatal outcomes, there was no difference between the two groups in terms of low birth weight, sex, mean birth weight, head circumference, APGARS, receipt of pharmacological therapy for NALS, receipt of secondary pharmacological treatment for NALS, total length of hospital stay for NALS, and NICU admissions. So I think that that was really interesting that both kind of turned out to be exactly the same. I think that um, my biggest takeaway here is that physicians are creatures of habit. And I think that kind of probably more so appropriately worded creatures of comfort and we get comfortable with certain practices. I think most of us have had it kind of like beat it into our head that someone that's pregnant needs to be just on buprenorphine to drop the naloxone component. And even though this data continues to amount, I think some of us are resistant to change. I also think that a fair number of patients have now been told this and they kind of instinctively feel that the moment they become pregnant that they need to call to make a switch over. While not kind of discussed in this uh, paper directly, I do think that a, a period of transition from switching people from the combination therapy to the mono product is a window of instability. Every time you do it, you have to do a new prior authorization. There's a possibility of a slight supply chain interruption. I think it does provide a window for possible relapse. Sometimes people are not super thrilled to find out that they're pregnant. So they might be stressed and they already might have a lot going on from an emotional or psychosocial standpoint. So I think that deprioritizing the switch to a time that's convenient and safe really is a, is a valuable tool to keep in your back pocket. And knowing that you're not going to hurt them makes me feel a little bit better about this. I think that moving forward, like when I have pregnant patients, I typically still do switch them, but kind of at a time frame that's convenient after the authorization is done and, and really there's no other concern. And I actually give it up to the patient now to decide if they want to make the switch or not. Yeah, I think this was a super important article. And like you said, it just makes the experience of pregnant women dealing with opioid use disorder a little easier for them. And it gives us a little more comfort choosing either medication. I think this article also must have struck a chord somewhere out in the world because this is the most popular episode of all the ones we've recorded recently. It just got a ton of downloads. We didn't get any feedback about it, so I don't know what people have to say, but obviously it struck a chord somewhere because a lot of people were listening to that one. So I'm glad you presented that article. All right, episode 18 about hepatitis C. So this article was published in Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology just this past December 2022, and it was from the HERO study group. The paper was titled, Patient-Centered Models of Hepatitis C Treatment for People Who Inject Drugs, a Multicenter Pragmatic Randomized Trial. So this was a pragmatic randomized controlled trial comparing two different models of hepatitis C care in people who inject drugs. There was a modified directly observed therapy arm and a regular therapy arm supported by patient navigators. All the patients in the study were actively injecting drugs at the time of enrollment. And as you might know, up to 70% of people who inject drugs in some areas of our country have contracted hepatitis C. And so this is an important disease in addiction medicine, even though it's not technically about the addiction. 
The results showed that both strategies, a directly observed therapy strategy and a strategy where you just had the help of a patient navigator to get through the treatment, both strategies performed the same. So directly observed therapy was not better than patient navigator supported treatment for hepatitis C care. Approximately 60% of all the patients randomized into this study achieved cure of their hepatitis C which is an amazing accomplishment for patients who are in the middle of the chaos of injection drug use. Of the patients who managed to complete the treatment protocol, not necessarily take all the doses of study medication, but complete the protocol, about 92% achieved sustained viral response, which is cure of hepatitis C. And that's what we see in treatment of hepatitis C in other populations who are less chaotic. It was a little lower than in some of the other trials, but it wasn't that much lower. And as you know, treatment for hep C is extremely effective. So this study showed that both models of hepatitis C care can be effective, even in a population of active injection drug users. And so I think it just shows that we should be targeting this population in the worldwide goal of eradicating hepatitis C by 2030. And you don't need a super intense directly observed therapy model to make this treatment effective. Yeah, I think that was awesome. I think the fact that you had basically 60% of patients were treated for hepatitis C that were actively injecting drugs, that's a lot of chaos, a lot of social barriers. I mean, 60% doesn't sound good. I think for this population, that's fantastic. So I think it's really interesting I love the idea of not being paternalistic with patients and and forcing them to take the medication in front of you. I think this also makes them take earnest of their health and and charge of their own lives. So I, I like empowering them. This is kind of reinforces all the positive stuff. Yeah. And it's just so important. There is no way we're going to eradicate hepatitis C without working closely with this population, because that's where the bulk of our new infections are coming from. Episode 19, I really like this one. It's sorting through life, evaluating patient-important measures of success in a medication for opioid use disorder treatment program, and from substance abuse treatment prevention and policy from January of 2023. This was a very small but interesting qualitative study with two arms of data collection aimed at determining patient-derived important measures of success in a medication for opioid use disorder treatment program. In phase one, they did identification of items for a pile sorting task through 16 semi-structured qualitative interviews with participants in active medication for opioid use disorder treatment programs. Domains of interest included previous experience in one of these programs, motivations for treatment, personal goals in the program, and self-identified measures of success. After the completion of this semi-structured interview, they had 28 participants that went through a pile sorting task where they were asked to sort and rank a combination of measures from those patient-derived questionnaires that we just talked about, in addition to six, quote, classic measures of success in these programs, which were added by the researchers. And they were asked to place them into high, medium, low, and no importance categories. I think the most telling part of the entire article for me was that the six classic markers of success for medication for opioid use disorder treatment were added by the researchers, and these were not self-identified by the patients. So these were the ones that were added by the researchers after they talked to the patients in treatment. Negative urine drug screens, not getting arrested or violating my probation, being tested for HIV or hepatitis C, decreasing how often I go to the hospital or emergency room decreasing how often I overdose and having less physical pain. And I thought that was outstanding to me or mind blowing because literally that's the outcomes of literally almost every trial that we we look at in, in this journal club. So it shows that just from them having to add that they were not included, that there, there is a big disconnect between what patients view as success and what we view as success. 
you know, the results of the trial might limit generalizability for a couple of reasons. It's a very small sample size, so take that into account. Interestingly, this group of patients all had access to routine medical care, so there weren't medical health barriers. However, they were all homeless. So, you know, kind of with a grain of salt, these people had kind of a lot of housing needs, possibly access to medical care, not as a big of priority to them. And when they did an analysis of all the sorting tasks using this non-metric multidimensional scaling, it really came out to this one primary cluster of patient-derived measures of success. And it broke down to three subgroups. One was emotional well-being, so optimism, happiness, sense of self-worth, decreased drug use, so not using opioids at all and not being physically dependent. And then human functioning was actually the most important with stable housing being neat and clean and having basic hygiene actually being towards the highest rated in terms of uh, the multidimensional scaling. There were some secondary and tertiary clusters kind of centered around um, buprenorphine groups. So whether you attended group, being honest in group, contributing to group, I almost view that as like a sense of community since a lot of patients that go to support groups that, that can becomes their new superior system since they move out of their previous group that did drugs or or maybe with social circles that caused issues for them. There's also a tertiary uh, measure of success, uh, a cluster where it was basically traditional buprenorphine success marker. So were you taking your medicine as prescribed? Do you have total absence? Were you not using any other substance? So like I said, I think this article wasn't really practice changing for me, but it was perspective changing. I do think that knowing that kind of functionality is a real driver for patients is really important to know. And I, I started to kind of ask more about that when I talk with my patients about what's important to them and what they're kind of doing in, in between our office visits. Also, a sense of frustration I've always had is people missing my appointments uh, because things come up at either home or the work. And I'm realizing now that maybe that's not kind of a malicious intent. Maybe that just is something that's really important to them. And I should probably respect that and try to work with them if I can. Yeah, patients vote with their feet. You know, if I tell someone every month for three years to get their labs done and they never do it, it's pretty obvious that that's not something that's very important to them. And I think as doctors, sometimes we are a little bit control freaks and we get annoyed when we can't check off all our boxes or make people do exactly what we want you know, or what we think the best treatment is. We can't get them to do things that way. Um, and with addiction treatment, I think you have to let some of that go. Think about what the patient really wants and what will get them where they want to be in life. And if your treatment doesn't contribute to that, you're just not going to be as successful. All right. Article number 20, targeted naltrexone for binge drinking. This last episode reviewed the article called Targeted Oral Naltrexone for Mild to Moderate Alcohol Use Disorder Among Sexual and Gender Minority Men, a Randomized Trial. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2022. So the clinical question in this article is, does taking targeted naltrexone when you feel alcohol cravings or anticipate binge drinking lead to reduced alcohol use? So this is a strategy of taking the naltrexone only when you feel like drinking rather than every day, which is a more typical prescribing pattern. And this was an intervention specifically targeting binge drinking pattern. The people in this study were men who binge drank, wanted to cut down on their drinking, and were also having sex with men while intoxicated, which is perceived as risky sexual behavior. There was a high rate of HIV in this population, and so having sex while intoxicated does raise the risk of spread of HIV. 
We thought that this was a great trial with a robust study design. It had 120 people in it. It was randomized, blinded, and placebo-controlled. And the results showed that participants were very satisfied with the protocol. They took the study medication on average 2.5 times a week. So there were 2.5 times a week where they thought they were going to binge drink or were having a lot of alcohol cravings and took the medication. On 74% of the days they craved alcohol or planned to binge drink, they took the medication. So they really did use it when they were supposed to. Taking the naltrexone compared with placebo did not reduce frequency of drinking, but it did reduce the amount of binge drinking during each drinking episode. The number needed to treat is two to prevent a binge drinking day each week, and the number needed to treat is 7.4 to prevent binge drinking for an entire week. The number needed to treat was 5.7 to prevent 10 additional drinks per month. And the effects endured up to six months post-treatment, even after people were done with this study. So this article did change my practice because prior to reading it, I had not heard of this way of dosing naltrexone, but I definitely put it in my toolbox and now I can offer it to patients who are looking to cut down on their alcohol use or who particularly have difficulty with binge drinking or drinking during social episodes or on the weekends only, but don't necessarily want to take a medication every day. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think a lot more people buy into kind of medicine they use as needed. So I haven't started to use this yet routinely. I actually just haven't had a patient yet come up where I thought this would be a good solution. Um, but I certainly am going to put it in my toolbox of medications for alcohol use disorder. I certainly have a, a handful of them I'll try from time to time that kind of meets the person's needs. I think it also is a great protocol for reducing side effects because now Trexone does have some side effects, including nausea, and headaches. And so if someone's experiencing that and they're not even drinking every day, then maybe they can minimize the side effects they have to suffer by only taking it on the days when alcohol really is more of a problem. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, talk to us on email, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Spotify. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Video production by Spencer Kennedy. Production by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.